Hello and welcome to the Foundation for Science and Technology podcast. I'm Gavin Costigan and this month we've been discussing batteries and new battery technologies. In this fourth and final conversation, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Claire Gray from the University of Cambridge. Claire, it's a good month to be discussing batteries as the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2019 has just been awarded for the development of lithium ion batteries. Could you tell us a little bit about that discovery, what lithium ion batteries actually are and how they differ from previous batteries? So a lithium ion battery technically means that it's the lithium ions that shuttle between two different materials, one that gets oxidised and one that gets reduced to produce a voltage. And the Nobel Prize was given for, to three people for three specific reasons. So it was given to Stan Whittingham because he was the one who showed that you could take a layered material, so a material where you have layers of titanium, sulfur and lithium, and then on charging you could pull the lithium out and then that then travelled through an electrolyte. So that's a liquid that conducts the lithium ions but doesn't conduct electrons and it gets the lithium then, the lithium ions then get deposited as lithium on an anode. And the key thing about Stan's invention was that you could take a material and you could do that multiple times and it sort of showed that lithium ion technology might be practical. Now that was technically technically called a lithium battery at that point because the lithium was deposited as the lithium ions were deposited as lithium metal. And so then John Goodenough, uh, about ten years later, he came in and said if we move from an ox a sulfide to an oxide, then we could raise the voltage. And we could then get a, a battery that operated at about four volts versus lithium metal. And that really then opened up the, the space because then that became a battery that was noticeably better than a lead acid battery or a NICAD battery or other batteries that are rechargeable. But the problem with Stan's invention and also uh, John's invention was that it used lithium metal. And some of the original batteries that were developed based on the titanium sulfide and had a series of safety incidents because the lithium metal would not plate smoothly. It would form these dendritic structures, which would then grow across from the anode to the cathode through a separator that was sort of meant to hold the things apart, but is still porous, would cause short circuits and fires. And so that then meant that the original inventions weren't necessarily ready to go to make a commercial system. And it was... Um, Yoshino, who he came in, Akira Yoshino came in and he said, let's find a material on the anode that safely traps the lithium. And so the first thing he came up with was a conducting polymer that would absorb the lithiums essentially and hold them safely. But that wasn't good enough from a volumetric density perspective. In other words, it was too, too heavy to take up that many lithiums. So he then replaced it with a carbon anode, so a carbonaceous anode and showed that you could reversibly cycle the lithium cobalt oxide or the lithium titanium sulfide or whatever material you wanted on the cathode against the anode. And that was sort of the beginnings of the real lithium ion battery that, that we know today that was then taken with him in collaboration with Sony to make the first rechargeable battery in 1991. And it's taken quite some time as technologies often do for lithium-ion batteries to become mainstream. What were the main challenges that needed to be overcome over the last 30 years or so? Well, I sort of challenge that, the fact that it's made taken a long time to become mainstream because, I mean, we've had lithium-ion batteries in our mobile phones now for quite a while. I mean, even the sort of earliest, we're all used to our smartphones, but the first generation of mobile phones did have 
the NICAD systems, but then quite pretty rapidly we moved into lithium-ion. But the sort of difference that has come in has been the reproducibility, the ability to cycle backwards and forwards for many more times so that we move from systems that would start to die much more uh, more quickly to ones that can be cycled for many, many more cycles. And a lot of that was associated with, first of all, from the initial carbons that were more amorphous, we moved into these nicely engineered graphitic particles. We learned how to optimize the additives in the electrolytes so that we would shut down a lot of the degradation reactions that occur when you cycle these materials. And I think it's important to recognize that the lithium-ion battery works with an electrolyte that's not stable against the cathode when it's oxidized and is not stable against the anode when it's fully reduced. So when you put the lithium into the carbons, it's almost as reactive as lithium metal. And that attacks the electrolyte. And it's only because we form this passivating layer over the graphite that protects it and stops it reacting. So the chemistry of getting that right has been optimized over the last few years. And then we've improved the engineering, we've got thinner current collectors, we've got thinner separators so that we have higher energy density. So we have, uh, we're able to pack more stuff into the same volume and just get higher energy density. So it's sort of small incremental advances. The overall energy density of a battery has gone up about a factor of three since it was first invented. And then the other thing is that its price has come down dramatically. And some of that's come from just scale up, some of it's come from learning, and some of it's come from oversupply. And then there's, so those are all the portable electronics batteries. And then there are slightly different technologies or materials that are going into electric vehicle batteries. And so those two have their own um, path of invention. Yeah. So the UK government Faraday Battery Challenge is looking to drive forward the development of a new generation of batteries that are lighter, that hold more charge, that can be recharged more quickly in order to really develop the electric vehicle market. Can lithium ion batteries deliver this? Are they the right type of technology? Well, I mean, I would argue that they are already delivering it and that it's the fact that they are fit for purpose, which means that they are being rolled out no pun intended, into cars you know, as we as we speak. The question you have to ask is, can they deliver it at the cost that would allow more widespread use of lithium-ion batteries? And I think the answer is yes, for sure. I think that prices are coming down. I think if we can work on materials that will last longer, so a battery that lasts twice as long is effectively twice as cheap, and there's some real prospects that those sort of inventions will occur. Do I think that the batteries will be fit for purpose for the bigger applications like lorries and trucks, aeroplanes? I think that's a much bigger challenge. But in terms of the electric vehicle space, absolutely. And the batteries in the automotive sector go from the smaller ones that you might have for a stop start all the way through to full electrification. I think there's a lot of innovation that we can do in the stop start market in terms of fast charging, and there are ways that we can think about mitigation of degradation processes on the fly by in-situ monitoring. So, so I, I think that there's no question about it, that the lithium-ion battery is, is fit for purpose in the automotive sector. You then talked about some of the larger applications, so large trucks and aircraft and so on. Thinking about those applications, are lithium-ion batteries also the right answer for that? Or are other technologies more likely to solve that problem? Well, I mean, I personally think we have to take the long view because we have this ambitious challenge to have a zero carbon by 
2050 in the UK and in, in shorter time frame in other countries. And in order to do that, we have to invent and come up with new methods. And I think if you just imagine different ways of doing this and different models that will need to be rolled out in order to achieve it, then different things become possible. So just to give an illustration, one of the reasons why it's expensive for many people to buy something, a car such as a Tesla or a high-end car that has a very large battery pack is that you end up spending a lot of money for a large battery pack that you don't use very often. And so if you can come up with other models that would effectively pay for that extra battery pack that you'd only need if you wanted to go on your long long distance trip, then these things become potentially more cost effective for a larger section of the community. And so you can imagine scenarios where you might sell your battery pack for its usage in the grid. And if you're going to use your battery for the grid, then it's going to be charged and discharged more often. And so therefore it might degrade more fast. And so some people, for some people, that might be an issue. Those And those would be the people that would be going on 300 mile drives frequently, whether they're a salesperson or somebody who just has a, large, a very long commute to work. But then there are other people where the 300 mile drives would just be a very infrequent occasion. So for them, it might make sense to have different models of using their batteries, which effectively reduce cost. And then you have ideas that really haven't had traction yet, but are not fundamentally stupid, like renting a battery pack, having towing your battery pack or having a battery pack being delivered to you or, or possibly swaps where you might swap your car for 300 mile range or 400 mile range car when you needed it and so I think we have we're going to have to sort of address those sort of societal questions if we're going to think about ways of, of reducing cost so just to then answer the question which you did ask me which is about lorries and trucks and, and aeroplanes the other thing that comes in is the use of autonomous vehicles and methods that you might have cars go off and charge themselves if we're going to have methods with lorries, then we're going to have to think about distribution, new distribution systems. So the electric components are only small fractions of the journey and then they go to a depot and they might go onto a train. So I think we're going to have to rethink how we do transport if we're going to get electrification in, in large amounts for trucks and lorries. And for aeroplanes, I, I know there are other people who disagree with me. I think that we should be le leaving the use of um, fuel for the aeroplane as the last resort. But there are advantages of using electric motors. The um, planes can be more efficient. Uh, the drag on the different types of uh, the electric motor-based systems can be lower. So there could be some advantages. But mainstream transport by plane seems to be the, would be the last thing to go, in my personal opinion. But I could be wrong. We obviously need to integrate uh, across transport. You also wind it out to the whole of the zero carbon efforts in the UK and talked a little bit about potentially using your own batteries to feed back into the grid. And obviously, batteries for the grid are one of the things that are also being considered more generally, in part because renewable energy comes at, at not always at the, at the same time and therefore greater issue of storage. Thinking then about grid storage across the piece, what are the current developments in batteries that are going to be most useful for that? Is it actually just using vehicle batteries as you've dis described? Are there other types of batteries that are, need to be developed for grid storage? I personally think that the issue of storage on the grid is one of the biggest challenges we face. I think the 
work in the automotive sector, we can see a way forward, well as on the grid, making the monstrous battery that would compete with another hydroelectric dam is, is a real challenge. And I think batteries are fit for purpose for short-term fluctuation, so frequency regulation, making sure the frequency is maintained, making sure that when the sun goes behind the cloud, the batteries can kick on very, very rapidly, giving the other alternative generation sources, such as um, gas turbines, the time to kick on, which will take about 20 minutes. Batteries can do it. The real challenge is how do we think about backup for longer-term periods where there's no wind? And so some of that will have to be done by increased connectivity. So we already have large wires that go across under the channel to Norway. And all of that will continue, even in the current political situation. We still will have those electrical contacts. And that will be essential in order to do the sort of balancing that we're going to have to do to deal with intermittency. Because probability that if it's not windy in the UK, it won't be windy anywhere in Europe is low. Although there are weather patterns where large fractions of Europe will be similar. So that will help. But I do think we need to think about how we restore energy for longer times. And I, I personally think that storage will not only be in sort of what we see as the conventional lithium ion technology. We're going to have to think about things like redox flow batteries that are systems where you flow liquids that are oxidized and reduced into electrochemical cells to, to get energy when we need it. Those are inherently more scalable, but they're more expensive at the moment, so they're not competitive with lithium-ion. And the jury is out as to whether they will make it, make it into the market because of the cost. We're going to have to be thinking about whether we use excess electricity to make fuels, uh, so whether we, make it, whether we make hydrogen or methanol or other fuels that we can then use. Uh, we need to think about different energy vectors. Again, so the whole question of hydrogen, but hydrogen isn't the only other energy vector that models based on ammonia. And then we also need to think about cheaper alternatives to lithium ion. So the sodium ion battery is the obvious cheaper battery technology that's much closer to being ready than other ones such as magnesium or aluminium. And I think there is a prospect that sodium ion batteries could play a role in the next generations of slightly larger battery banks. So I think the jury is really open, but I think it's it's a big challenge. And I also think that we're not going to do it in one different way. There are going to be, have to be multiple approaches for storing energy and then delivering it when it's needed. And what's your view on the balance between large storage of energy near to where it's produced and uh, a large number of small storages of energy closer to the consumer so we all have a battery on our house or in the factory or whatever well that's a, such a difficult question because it's not just based on the science it's also based on the regulation and i i personally if, if there were not wasn't a regulation issue uh, i'd say that the local aspects make a lot of sense I mean, I think if a local community has a windmill and a backup system that they benefit from directly, then there would be less resistance to having things in your backyard. But the model we have at the moment doesn't encourage that. Also, given that a lot of the lithium-ion technology is inherently small, that again provides an incentive for it to be local. But you have to have the regulation in place where the people who are having to have the inconvenience of the the battery pack in their back garden and the windmill have an incentive to do it. And we don't have that model very well developed. 
And then there are cases in still in large parts of the world. So I was in Bolivia uh, a month ago, and there they're looking at trying to get micro systems with small batteries and solar panels because they're off the grid. So uh, that's obviously not the case in the UK, or of course there are there are more remote places where there, there are, there's a business case for doing it. But I, I really think the jury is out and it's going to require regulation to sort this out. Then also maintaining some of these battery packs. People like lithium ion because it's low maintenance and, and actually lead acid is less low maintenance than that. And so it will depend on the community, their willingness to maintain things and the business models that are developed around it. So one of the business models and part of maintenance, of course, is a full life aspect and recycling. And whilst there is uh, 99% recycling for lead acid batteries, for lithium ion, it's still a lot less. Is recycling for lithium ion technically difficult or is it just systems and structures that need to be put in place? Well, I think there's, there's multiple aspects as to why it's been so slow. I mean, in the first instance, it's because the recycling has been largely done from the mobile phones where the lithium-ion battery doesn't have the most components with the most value in it. And the difficulty is such that you don't make a lot of money from recycling. And if you have, if you think about recycling of a mobile phone battery, you're recycling it often, although you're recycling, sorry, the mobile phone because you're trying to get the other components out of the phone that may have metals in there that are worth the recycling. Then you talk about the phone battery, you're getting, you're recycling not for the lithium, because the lithium is still too cheap. You're, you're recycling for the cobalt. And now we're moving to these much bigger electric vehicle batteries where we're trying to reduce the cobalt. We're putting nickel in. We're still, it's, and nickel is still a, a high value metal that we will want to recycle. Well, but as the batteries become cheaper in terms of the cost of the cathode and the metals that are used, there'll be less incentive to recycle. So there are a number of reasons why it's been slow. I, I think that we need to have a model where the batteries are appropriately priced for recycling. So that's taken into account. Is they're engineered for more easy recycling? It's not an easy business. So from a chemistry perspective, you've got to take this battery apart. There are often little chunks of lithium metal that are formed on the graphite. And so these batteries can catch fire when you take them apart. They contain LiPF6, which is a salt that, if it oxidizes and degrades, can be quite toxic. When the lithium-ion battery burns, it gives off gases that are chemically related to um, mustard gas. And so these are toxic gases, that, so you need to develop a process that can accommodate that. And then the other problem with the recycling is that you have this mess of different materials. You've got the polymer binders, you've got the metals, you've got the, the metal oxides, and they all need to be taken apart. So you either you put them in a big slag heap and you just melt them up and you return everything back to the individual elements, which is very cost ineffective, or you have to pull them apart and see if you can separate them individually. And so those processes are being developed. The company Umacore has a recycling process, but it's only just started. And I think we do need to incentivize industry to do this from day one. But the, I mean, the car companies are aware of this. And, and, you know, it isn't my greatest expertise, but we do also need to think about as chemists, which is which is my expertise, how we can design batteries that are inherently easier 
to recycle. So just to give you a little illustration, we can when we make a cathode material or an anode material, we mix it together. So we take our lithium cobalt oxide or our lithium nickel manganese oxide and we mix it with a binder. And the current binders contain fluorine and hydrogen. The binder is called PVDF. But we're moving to more sustainable binders, such as cellulose-based ones. And so if you mixed a cellulose-based binder with a metal oxide, that inherently would be easier to recycle. So there's sort of practical things that we need to sort of think about that we can design in from day one that might have implications for recycling. But all of this become, comes at a trade-off. You know, we're, we're tensioned with we want to have higher energy density so our batteries can last longer and that can drive for longer. But then we also want them to be more easy to recycle. And so it's very difficult to have everything at the same time. But those are the, we need to be aware of this and make those decisions with at least the full life cycle analysis in place and, and in, as part of the decision process from, from day one and recognize that that might then have consequences on energy density and other performance metrics. One of the other types of batteries that we haven't spoken about so far is solid state batteries. And I wondered what you thought the prospects were for developing those technologies. I'm an academic, as you know, and I think that, again, I talked about the sort of 2050 scenario. And I think remembering that in order to get technologies in place that are going to be out in the marketplace, that's a process that takes 10 to 15 years, often minimum. So we need to be thinking now about what we're going to do for the batteries that will be used from 15 years from now. And so I don't think we can shut off different avenues for research and I mentioned in terms of the recycling that the electrolyte in the salt, the LIPF6, is problematic for recycling. There have been many well-documented safety incidents, and that's largely associated with the fact the organic electrolyte can catch fire uh, when the cathode and anode come into short circuit or contact with each other to cause a short circuit. So I think a solid-state battery makes a lot of sense, but I do think it's a challenge because you have to distinguish between two types of solid state batteries. One is a ceramic based one. So everything is an oxide or a solid material to one where you might have a semi-solid battery where you might have a polymer system. And, and the reason why the polymer ones are, are more interesting in the short term is that because polymers are soft and squishy and that when materials expand and contract, maybe your polymer that's in between the materials that are expanding and contracting, that can sort of buffer those changes. You can often get higher ionic transport through the polymers, again, because they're more mobile. So those might, those are coming in in the, in the more shorter term. I mean, the car company Bolloray in France has a lithium system with a polymer battery. The all ceramic ones are a challenge, and I think they have prospects for small batteries where you have thin layers of the cathode, the electrolyte and the anode, scaling them up to the bigger batteries at the energy density that's practical, I, I do think is a challenge. But there are ways that you can imagine doing it in terms of finding materials where one expands, the other contracts, leaving enough space to buffer some of those changes. But it's a lot of work. And so it's one of those things where there isn't a clear trajectory towards a final product, but it's certainly given that it is the way to solve the various safety problems. It is a worth. It is a way that is definitely worth pursuing. So I encourage the companies that are out there, and I think just you know, go for it. 
looking into a crystal ball and given all the effort that the UK is putting in with its battery challenge and so on, where do you think that battery technology will be in five years time? So I'm, I'm hoping that in five years time we will have electric vehicles with batteries in them that will have increasingly lower cobalt contents. So therefore they're, they're cheaper and they are made with mi- minerals that are not necessarily not necessarily sourced from places like the Congo. I hope that we will have more proactive battery management systems so that they can be more responsive to driving habits that might, for example, result in more rapid degradation of your battery. They We might have better ways of monitoring so that the batteries, when they come to their end of their life, can be used in a second-hand market. And I hope we will have methods in place that minimize degradation of these batteries so they can last more than seven years. They can really live the whole length of the car. And I hope that we will also have increasing clarity as to what the next generation of batteries might be. We might have progress in lithium sulfur batteries, which have two times higher energy densities, lithium air batteries, which have three or four times higher energy densities, we might be further along that roadmap to understand where those batteries will play a role, not necessarily in the automotive sector, but in grid storage. So that that would be my vision. And I hope also by using big data methods, we will start to amass more information about degradation and use of batteries to not only improve them, but also understand which batteries are going to fail and which ones will continue on so that we can then have this better second-hand market. And I think we'll also have new materials. We'll have new new additives, new electrolytes to make the next generation of batteries. And I, I personally am interested in developing methods to do this in-situ monitoring so we can actually track while a battery is working what's going on, what's going wrong with it so that we can actually make real-time interventions to increase longevity. And finally, when the Nobel Committee for Chemistry in 30 or 40 years time is looking back at this period and and thinking of awarding another Nobel Prize for batteries, what are the breakthroughs, what are the things that either are occurring now or might occur in the next few years that would be a great candidate for that Nobel Prize? Well, that's a very, very good question. I would like to think that the there, I think there are multiple Nobel Prizes that could be awarded because the battery chemistry has just exploded in terms of the different questions, the scientific questions that have emerged because of the need to get the battery so much better. And we still don't really understand how to optimize ions moving from a liquid into the solid and to understand electron transfer processes, to understand how to characterize interfaces between the different components in non outside thermodynamic equilibrium. So I can think you can imagine a Nobel Prize for the person, or the not, not the person, the group of people who really improve our understanding of some of these processes. But I think there also will be prizes, one would like to think at least, for the next type of generation battery that allows us to move energy around with increased efficiency. So whether it's a combination of a battery and a fuel cell or a redox flow system or just somebody who optimizes the lithium oxygen battery. So I think obviously the jury is out, but I think it will be from a combination of increased understanding of some of the fundamental processes that underpin the batteries, whether it's their magnetic the electronic properties, how electrons and ions move around, how we characterize them and then 
the next generation batteries that can store more energy density for longer periods of time. We just have to wait 30 years to find out. Well, uh, so yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So I'll, I'll, be, I'll be waiting. Claire Gray, thank you very much for your time. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. Next week, we're moving away from batteries and I'll be speaking to Professor Chris Whitty about his new role as Chief Medical Officer for England and for the UK government. Until then, you can find all our podcasts on soundcloud.com and on the Foundation's website at www.foundation.org.uk.